You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they hammered out gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and into the fine twined linen, in skilled design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces, joined to it at its two edges. And the skillfully woven band on it was of one piece with it, and made like it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree, and engraved like the engravings of a signet, according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He made the breastpiece in skilled work, in the style of the ephod, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled, a span its length, and a span its breadth when doubled. And they set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle was the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree. There were twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name, for the twelve tribes. And they made on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of filigree. Thus they attached it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece, on its inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod, at its seams above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue, and the opening of the robe in it was like the opening in a garment, with a binding around the opening, so that it might not tear. On the hem of the robe they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe, between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as Yahweh had commanded Moses. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twined linen, and the sash of fine twined linen, and of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold, and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, Holy to Yahweh. And they tied to it a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Thus all the work of the tabernacle, 
of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and goatskins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and its mercy seat, the table with all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold, and its lamps with the lamps set, and all its utensils, and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent." the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As Yahweh had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony. And you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand, and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also, and put coats on them, and anoint them, as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations." This Moses did, according to all that Yahweh commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put its poles in and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, and put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above on the ark, and he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before Yahweh as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the golden altar, in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burned fragrant incense on it, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the green offering, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as Yahweh 
commanded Moses, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 589. We are not very far off from episode 600 of this podcast. It is a Monday uh, (laughs) for the life of me. I just can't even believe that it's almost Easter. Uh... This coming Friday is Good Friday. I didn't realize that until today when my good friend, Officer Bergman, Luke Bergman, contacted me and asked, are we having biblical training group this coming Friday? His wife was asking him and he says, well, I don't know because we're having a Good Friday service at church at Summit View Community Church. You're welcome. If you're in the area, please stop on by 7 p.m at Summit View Community Church in technically Evans, but Greeley Evans, it's hard to tell where one ends and the other begins. But he asked, and I said, oh, wow, is it actually Good Friday this coming Friday? And sure enough, lo and behold, it is. And I have a confession to make, and I made it to our biblical training group when I sent out the announcement that no, in fact, we will not be having group this coming Friday There's really only three holidays that I consistently remember, and those are, in order, Christmas, Thanksgiving, and the 4th of July. I suppose you could count New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, but I I don't know. I I don't even like to think of them as holidays. I really don't. I, I know that they kind of are, but nevertheless, Christmas Day, Thanksgiving Day, and the 4th of July... Those are the three that I remember every other holiday throughout the year. It just kind of happens that my wife or a friend of mine will say, are we doing anything? Are you guys doing anything for this holiday? Do you want to get together? What plans do you have? And then I realize, oh, yeah, we should probably have some kind of plans. And that's one of the, I guess, upsides and also uh, opportunities, occasions for being caught flat-footed. When you host a biblical training group, <laughs> uh, you you all of a sudden have to consider other people, what they might be planning and might have going on. Like, for instance, your entire church might have a service on that day when you were otherwise planning on having your biblical training group as per usual. But nevertheless, Good Friday is this coming Friday. Again, that was Exodus 39 to 40, if I didn't mention Already, that is the end of the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And here we have the fruition of all these labors. How long did it take? How many hours went into making these things? I'd be curious if somebody's done an estimate. How long would it take? It really depends on, I suppose, how many people you have working on these things, how skilled they are, and how attentive to detail they would be. But When God himself is the one who has given instructions that these things be made well, and he himself has handpicked the people who will be overseeing the fashioning of these things, the making of these things, he's given specifications for how they're to be made, one would imagine you don't rush that order. You take your time. You pay attention to the details. 
you are very attentive and you take care that it is beautiful and it is well made. If ever you were going to make something skillfully and well, it would be the articles pertaining to the tabernacle and the priestly garments, the furnishings, the utensils. These, one would imagine, need the utmost attention to detail and care and skill and excellence. But I think to myself again and again, as I look at how much detail there is, how when I was younger, I would come to these kinds of passages and I would think, man, this is so boring. Now, I'll just be honest. I'll just be completely honest. When I was younger, I thought, man, this is so boring. Kind of like the genealogies. Do I need this much detail? What is the point? Why is this in here? And as I've gotten older and as I have seen more, I suppose, in my adult life and as a father, as a husband, as a working man, who works in a technical field, in a technical profession. I work in automation in the oil and gas industry. There's danger to it. There is technical uh, specificity and prowess that is needed and required. Attention to detail is required. I think I see these passages in a new light. And I can imagine someone even my age who is, oh, shall we say, much more pragmatic or much more inclined to over-spiritualizing things, looking at all these details and saying, none of it matters, really. I mean, where is all this stuff that went into the tabernacle? None of it really matters. All that matters is God and his will and his purposes and his plans. And I say, if God gave commands for these things to be made, however long they were going to last, whether we still have them to look at. We we don't have them in a museum anywhere, as Indiana Jones would say. They belong in a museum. But we don't have them in a museum somewhere, not that I know of, to where we can go look them up. We can go gaze at them through glass behind a velvet rope to make sure we keep our respectful distance. We don't have that. And so there's a part of me that thinks, man, what was the point? But, you know, the point really is not that these material objects had intrinsic value and worth over and above every other similar object existing then, before then, since then. The point is that insofar as this was service to God and obedience to God and trust in God, These objects and paying attention to putting them together skillfully, attentively, in an excellent way, with an eye for detail, these things had tremendous value because God said so. Because God said so. You know, there's this idea that I was explaining a bit in our last episode, and if you're not a subscriber, please do subscribe. And I don't just mean... In a general sense, I mean, sign up, 99 cents a month, and you can have access to the remaining one-third of my library of podcast episodes. But in our last episode, which was paid subscribers only, I talked about some comments that Dennis Prager, who is a political commentator, radio host, the driving force behind PragerU and PragerTopia, for instance, Dennis Prager made some comments for this Exodus series that Jordan Peterson is heading up over at the Daily Wire. Dennis Prager was part of a panel discussion along with Oz Guinness and others, and they came to this topic of lust, and some comments were made with regards to adultery, what is and isn't, and What does Dennis Prager, as a Jew, he's not a Christian, but as a Jew who appreciates Christians, values Christians, has a wide audience of Christians here in the U.S., what does Dennis Prager make of pornography? What is his perspective? What is his position? And he was asked the question and put on the spot as he said, yeah, you you have, you have put me on the spot. (laughs) And he answered the question. And if you want to hear 
my thoughts on what Dennis Prager had to say. You'll have to pay 99 cents a month. That's just all there is to it. You'll have to pay 99 cents a month, at least for one month, and go back and listen to it. But one of the things I got into as I was talking through what Prager did say and what he didn't say, and I take some issue with Todd Friol of Wretched. You may know him from Wretched. Uh, Todd Friol characterized Dennis Prager's remarks in a way that I don't believe is charitable and I don't believe is accurate. I don't believe it's an accurate assessment, a precise assessment of what Dennis Prager actually said. But I spoke to that. I spoke to what Dennis Prager had to say, and I spoke to the general topics in the course of two hours, actually. It's one of my longer episodes. It's not the longest. An episode that I did about some controversies regarding Doug Wilson is longer. An episode I did about President Biden's State of the Union address is longer. I think there was another one or two that were longer than this one still. But still, this is one of the longer episodes I've recorded. And I think you'll be curious to hear what I had to say in it on these topics. But what I will say, and not to repeat myself in a redundant way or in a tedious way, but to emphasize through repetition, one of the things I will say again in this episode is that a lot of Greek philosophy has fused itself into our way of thinking as Christians over the last 2,000 years. Uh, particularly since the Renaissance and the Enlightenment made much of Greek and Roman ways of thinking, to be sure. But the idea that what is material and what is physical is somehow inherently less than what is spiritual, what is mental and emotional and intellectual, and has to do with reason, I think that is as bad an error as materialism. Materialists will say, all that matters is what is material. That's all that there is. We are just lights and clockwork. We are just machines, biochemical machines, products of evolution. There's no inherent meaning to life. And so eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow, we die. There's no resurrection of the dead to a materialist. When you die, nothing happens. There is no God. We are not here for a purpose. So just live it up. Create your own purpose. Create your own meaning in life. Make it up as you go. There is no objective truth. Or if there is, you can't know it. I can't know it. We can't know it. So just take your best guess. Do what makes you happy. That's what the materialist will say. And I think what the person who over-spiritualizes things at the expense of assigning any value to the material world, the mistake that they make is arguably as bad, just in the opposite direction. And historically, the great heresies that have confronted the Christian faith over 2,000 years have had to do with rejecting either Christ's full humanity or his full divinity, not accepting that Christ could be fully God and fully man all at the same time. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? Who cares, right? Who cares whether he's fully God and fully man? What's the big deal? This isn't something we should disagree about and get all bent out of shape about, we should just be kind to each other. We should just unify around the gospel. And the problem with that kind of thinking, which is so du jour, it's so typical in our day with <laughs> theological, uh, doctrinal minimalism. The problem with that kind of thinking, to the extent that we've carried it, is you actually can't unify on the gospel with heretics. You can't. Now, just like we've got to walk something of a fine line on many things, so also here, what can we disagree about doctrinally and say, okay, we agree to disagree? And what can we not disagree about and still all be fellow believers? That's an important question. And the church has wrestled with that for two millennia. But early on, the church made up its mind from studying scripture, that you cannot consider yourself a Christian. You can't call yourself a Christian if you didn't, if you deny, if you deny Christ's full humanity and his full divinity. You can't. You can't be a Christian. 
and deny what Christ said about himself, what the scriptures testify to Christ about his being fully God and fully man. You can't be a Christian and deny those things. More to the point, it's important to note Muslims have some theology with regards to Jesus. If you can call Islam theological, their faith is very different than that of a Christian. And I don't just mean in the particulars. I mean the presuppositions. I mean the basis for having what we as Christians know of as theology is not to be assumed in Islam or Judaism, for that matter, certainly not in the case of Buddhism or Hinduism or Confucianism or Zoroastrianism or any of the cults of the gods of the Greeks or the Egyptians or the Norse, any of the animistic cults of remote peoples, either in time or in space. There's something distinctly and critically special about Christian theology, even when we disagree, the terms of our disagreements are distinctly Christian. And that actually is something we'll be getting into here later in this episode. We will be talking about Tom Holland's excellent book. I loved it. Not to give too much away, spoiler alert, I loved it. His excellent book, Dominion. We will be talking about that. So stay tuned. Stay with me. Don't lose interest here. We're going to talk about a few other things on the way to talking about Tom Holland's book. But first, John Knox, not his real name, I assume. I think that's a pseudonym over at Not The Bee, posted March 30th. Oh, look, another scientific discovery that shows the Bible was right all along. Scientists discover massive ocean beneath Earth's surface bigger than all the seas above land. You're not going to believe this if you were raised in an evolutionary mindset. If you grew up going to public schools, you probably were told, you were probably taught that evolution is the only scientific explanation for where we come from, how we got here, why we are the way that we are, where we're going, what life is all about. And you were probably taught to think that people who believe who, who believe the Bible is true, people who believe that Genesis is a true account of our origins are rubes at best, unscientific, ignorant, foolish. And yet, listen to this. As John Knox, not his real name, I assume, writes for not to be, and I quote, one of the core arguments against the historicity of the Bible and the flood account in Genesis by scientists has been that a global flood is impossible because there simply is not enough water on earth to flood the entire thing. This despite the fact that there is evidence accepted from secular scientists that there was clearly a global cataclysm at some point in earth's recent history. But where did the water come from? In Genesis chapter 7, this is what the Bible says. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. All the fountains of the great deep burst forth. What could that be referring to? Well, here's a story for you. And they have a link to a post over at unilad.com titled Scientists Discover Massive Ocean Beneath Earth's Surface Bigger Than All the Seas Above Land. Joe Rogan has actually picked this up. Joe Rogan, I believe, is the most successful, popular podcaster in the world. Joe Rogan has picked this up. He tweeted out, Me, man, it's after 2 a.m. I should probably get some sleep. Article, did you know that there's an absolutely massive supply of water hidden underneath the Earth's crust? That's three times bigger than the oceans that sit on the surface? Me. No, I did not know that. And now that's all I'm interested in. F sleep. It's rabbit hole time. Uh, A little crude, a little crass, I'll grant. But, but, you know what he means. (laughs) Joe Rogan is not a Christian. To be very clear, he's not a Christian. I've enjoyed some of what he has highlighted on his program I enjoy that he is highlighting this with his influence to his audience 
he is drawing attention to this business pertaining to the flood. Actually, I might need to correct myself. I think this might not have been his Twitter account. Maybe he tweeted it out to, it looks like it's Instagram. It's probably Instagram, just judging by the colorful circle around his profile picture. And also the fact that I saw in my feed on Instagram, which I am still on, unlike Twitter, where we're over a year now, we're over a year now into my 12-hour suspension for saying to at Chris Jolly Hale, with all due respect, what a retarded thing to say. I'm going to keep on telling you about it until somebody unsuspends me or there is a reckoning with Twitter. Lest anyone suppose Twitter is now totally great because Elon Musk owns it. Uh, yeah, probably don't assume that. Probably, probably don't assume that. For instance, for example, a Daily Wire reporter was suspended from Twitter over a story about the Trans Day of Vengeance scheduled for the same week as the Nashville shooting. Ben Zeisloft over at the Daily Wire posted about this March 28th. The Day of Vengeance was supposed to be this past Saturday. I don't know if much of anything came of it, but the point is not whether something came of this advertised Trans Day of Vengeance. The point is Luke Rosiak, an investigative reporter for the Daily Wire, was suspended from Twitter after he posted a link to a story about activists scheduling a transgender day of, uh, day of vengeance. Now, you can say, oh, well, you know, they were trying to stop people from promoting this thing, and some conservatives got caught up in the mix. I, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. It's too similar. It's too similar to what was happening before Elon Musk bought Twitter. And I, for one, am still not on Twitter. And it was a very, very frivolous reason that I was banned from the public square. So I'm going to say if Joe Rogan on Twitter or Instagram or anywhere else is raising awareness about this recent discovery by scientists, which young earth creationists who believe that there was a global flood can absolutely have a field day with and will. I am one of them. I will have a field day with this. I think it's great. I think this is quite probably evidence for the flood we read about in Genesis that destroyed all life on earth except what was safely aboard the ark that Noah made. I think this is evidence. I'm not going to forget this anytime soon. I hope you won't. Not saying it's proof inconclusively. Lots of things can be evidence and make claims credible. I'm not going to suddenly believe that Noah's flood actually happened. I start from a position of faith. I start from a position of belief because God's word rings true. And Christians for 2,000 years have held that what we read in God's word, what we know about God from God's word, must be testified to by the Holy Spirit. And there is more to it than proving in the way that modern people post-enlightenment demand proofs. So there you have it. For your consideration, I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go read it more in depth, but I think it's great stuff. I really do. Also from thedailywire.com, a piece by Hank Berrien, published just today, Gone with the Wind, publisher calls book harmful. Gone with the Wind, one of the most popular books ever written and made into a movie that won 10 Oscars, has been branded harmful by its own publisher. Pan Macmillan calls the Civil War epic, which took author Martha Mitchell 10 years to write, problematic in a note at the beginning of the latest edition, which adds that the book contains racist elements that are possibly hurtful or indeed harmful. What's the difference? I don't know the difference. If you do, you can write to me at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Gone with the Wind is a novel which includes problematic elements, including the romanticization of 
a shocking era in our history and the horrors of slavery, the publishers write, according to the Telegraph, the novel includes the representation of unacceptable practices, racist and stereotypical depictions, and troubling themes, characterization, language, and imagery. Now, let me just stop right there. Let me just stop right there. Do note that we have just finished reading the book of Exodus, which also talks about slavery. Just because it's portrayed, just because it's talked about, does not mean that it's being promoted, endorsed, affirmed, celebrated, just because it's being presented. Also, I don't know how many people know this these days, but it doesn't have to be all bad in order for us to say this or that thing should not have happened. It doesn't have to be 100% bad. And here I would refer actually back to Augustine's definition of evil. Evil is the privation of the good. It is the diminution of the good. It's a very foolish notion that we have in the modern era, that so long as we can find some good in something that somebody said or they've done or something that they are, therefore, that little bit of good that we can see in what we are assessing or who we are assessing <laughs> means that you shouldn't criticize it. Or if we have decided in all our infinite wisdom that a thing is bad or a person is bad, they can now do no right. Nothing that they do or say is good. And this is extraordinarily foolish. This is a very foolish thing to suppose. Because on the one hand, when you decide that somebody has transgressed, then everything that they do is wrong all of a sudden. And it might not be. It might not be. I'll give you uh, an illustration briefly. Suppose I am found to be guilty of some major infraction. I've done something that I shouldn't have done, or I've said something that I really shouldn't have said. Do you then therefore say about me that everything I've ever done was bad? Everything I've ever said was false. Well, what if I say the sun is shining right now? You say, well, that... I mean, we can verify that. Yeah, it's the sun is shining. I guess he might he must be telling the truth all the time. No, 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 not so. Suppose I go over to my friend's house and I help him out with some project. And you say, oh, that was a very good thing. It was a good thing that you did helping your friend. And so therefore, everything that you do is good. No, 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 no. That's not the way that works. That's not the way that works. That's a very foolish way to reason why do you call me good, Jesus says at a certain point, when he is called good teacher? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, the funny thing about it is he is God, so <laughs> there's that. But when Jesus talks about how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to his children, he says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a loaf of bread, you'll give him a stone. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? He says, if you evil fathers, if you fathers who are evil are able to good, give good gifts, if, you, if you're able to give good gifts to your children, how much more so is your father in heaven able to give good gifts to his children? Which is to say that somebody can be wrong, even badly wrong, and make major mistakes. And it doesn't mean that if you give them any credit for having said a true thing, done a good thing, you therefore have absolved them of any wrongdoing, of any inaccuracy or dishonesty. No. No. We got to get out of that kind of thinking. But also, too, I'll refer you to a recent episode I did. Actually, episode 586, I published March. 30th. And this is not why we homeschool. This is not why we homeschool. Having to do with Ambleside Online, a Christian homeschooling, Charlotte Mason-based curriculum we've been using for several years for all of our kids. Uh, they recently reworked This Country of Ours by H.E. Marshall, omitting any references to the Red Man or Squaw, because those are now deemed offensive. And you might think it's silly. Well, fine. If you think it's silly, make a different choice. Maybe I'm mistaken, 
But that for me, that's a bridge too far. When a publisher starts reworking somebody's book posthumously, and I don't just mean adding footnotes or commentary or a foreword, when they start omitting words, changing the wording because this or that is supposedly problematic now, who, buddy? I, I have real problems with that. I think that's a really dangerous road to go down. It's as simple as this. If the publisher for Gone with the Wind believes that this book is so harmful, then they should sell the rights to somebody else. It's just that simple. They should sell the rights to somebody else. If you don't believe in the book anymore, then unload it, preferably to somebody who is going to see value in it, because this is a classic work of literature, and it's part of our history. It doesn't have to mean that everything in it is good and true. In fact, how else are we going to learn if we don't preserve it in exactly the state that it was written in originally? And assess that. And actually, how arrogant are we if we think that we know so much better? We have it all figured out. Everything that they thought back then, we can have our way with. But if there's a disagreement between us and them, well, clearly we must know more. C.S. Lewis would call this chronological snobbery. Some have termed it presentism. It is hubristic. It is arrogant. It is foolish. It is definitionally being wise in our own eyes, and it's a generational problem right now. It has to do with worldview and a kind of groupthink and a zeitgeist that marks this time. I, for one, want nothing to do with it, personally. And to be honest, I don't trust the honesty of people alive today. I don't. Unless they have the humility and the wisdom to consider what people thought decades or centuries ago. And then, then I maybe am willing to hear them out. I may still not agree with them, but I'm willing to hear them out. If they're willing to be challenged by people who've been alive a long time ago and are no longer alive in a different context, they're willing to test what was written and their interest is in the truth and in the goodness and in what is beautiful, then I... I want to be their friend and chat with them endlessly. And I want to send them a link to my podcast so that they listen to my podcast and they talk with me about it. But I think one of the kinds of things that happens when we are stuck in this presentistic mindset is given an example in Harris Rigby's post, also from this morning, from today, Boston Children's Hospital demands more funding and capacity for trans surgeries on kids, which I was informed wasn't really happening. Harris Rigby writes, remember when conservatives came up with that insane and wacky conspiracy theory that children's hospitals across the country, and particularly in Boston, were performing sex reassignment surgeries on kids? We were told that isn't true. It's never been true. And right-wing nuts just made the whole thing up. Anyways, about that thing that isn't happening... Fox News reports Boston Children's Hospital director calls for drastic increase in capacity for gender surgeries for minors. The director at Boston Children's Hospital said medical school students should learn transgender surgeries in residency programs, Hannah Grossman reports. Lips of TikTok highlighted, brought to me so that I could bring it to you by Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee. That's the kind of thing that I don't want to be remembered for. And that's why I would rather read old books and learn from previous generations, triumphs and mistakes, and even heinous misdeeds. I would rather learn from what previous generations either learned the hard way or they did right than have to put up with only this and assume that this is going to be forever. Because this will not last forever. Friends, this is not going to be the way that it is forever. It can't be. This can't be maintained. Either Christ is going to come again and the whole world will be judged and that will interrupt it or we're going to have to have a reckoning with these people. We're just going to have to. They're going to have to be removed from positions of authority. They're not going to be allowed to teach 
or order people around when this is their heart. They can't be trusted. They are villains. Some might be misguided, but some make no mistake. They are downright evil. This is an evil thing. But another thing, another item here that is concerning. National Association for Gun Rights, I'm on their mailing list, Dudley Brown, who I recently had an opportunity to hear speak in person in Loveland at an event for Rocky Mountain gun owners. He emails out, Dear Garrett, with wildly anti-gun Joe Biden in the White House, Chinese communists are growing impatient. They expect him to force the U.S. into compliance with the United Nations so-called small arms treaty by any means necessary. Now, I'll stop right there. Long and short of it is there's a coalition of nations around the world who've signed on to this thing. It places severe restrictions on gun ownership and sale and transfer of firearms. It also requires gun registry, a gun registry database. The reason why that's a problem is because if tyrants want to disarm you and have their way with you and your family, your friends, and your property, which occasionally happens throughout history, it's another thing you learn from history is that sometimes people do that sort of a thing. Actually, quite often, people will try it unless you're able to stop them, in which case they typically don't try it if they know you can stop them. But China, according to Dudley Brown, with the NAGR and RMGO, says China is heading this up, leading the charge. And one of the complaints is that some countries are not abiding by what the rest of the world wants to do here with disarming their people. Uh, my concern here would be that the Chinese Communist Party has murdered tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions at this point of its own people. I don't know what the figures are for the one-child policy, but hundreds of millions seems plausible. They've brutalized the people that they didn't murder. They rule by fear and terror, and they do not respect human rights. In fact, their worldview is so fundamentally different, they have no conception of human rights as we in the West would think of human rights. And if they are able to take over the world, and we in America have no ability to protect ourselves, our families, our friends, our property, you can't know, you can't possibly fathom the terrible things that might be done to us. But actually, all of this is a great segue into Dominion by Tom Holland. Dominion, full title, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, published 2019. I listened to it here over the past couple of weeks. Just finished it up today. This is the second book by Tom Holland I've had the pleasure of listening to. It was, and I don't mean to sound hyperbolic, it was quite possibly the best history of Western civilization, particularly since the birth of Christ, which I think I've ever read. This was excellent. This was really, really well written, very informative. I learned a lot. I found it very thought-provoking. I found it very encouraging, actually, as well. And everybody should read it. Now, there are some items where I would say, well, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, for instance, I gather that Tom Holland is on good terms with the evolutionary theory of our origins. I get that impression, and I would disagree with that. Uh, also, too, when he goes from saying, even in a post-Christian West, we still are judging and evaluating and assessing actions and statements based on the premise that Christianity is true. Even when we deny it, we still are anyways. When he goes from that to saying that Islam actually has been overhauled in a distinctly Christian way, I don't know. I, I don't know about that. That might be going a little too far with it. I mean, after all, Muhammad's wife, I believe his first wife, 
older than he was when he very first supposedly received his revelation that brought about Islam, I would say from a demon. She was supposedly a Christian. And so, yes, Christianity from the beginning, from the get-go, had an influence on Islam, you might say. And also, insofar as I would say that the Quran was inspired by a demon, the, the, the demon knows that God is real and Christ is God made flesh. They're at war with that concept, I would say, in Islam, because the demons are at war with that concept and they're at war with God. But that bit notwithstanding, nevertheless, for Tom Holland to be talking about how important the gospel has been to the development of Western civilization, not contingent on the perfection of people who claim faith in Christ, but based on the inherent goodness and worthiness of the Christian faith, its fruits. It is refreshing and surprising and helpful and needful. You know, back in my younger days, I used to get into these debates with atheists and agnostic friends and people online who were friends of friends and were atheists and agnostics. And when the complaint against Christianity wasn't that a good God surely wouldn't allow for this and this and this and this, and therefore your God isn't good, and therefore I don't even believe that he exists, but which is it? Either he doesn't exist or he's not good, but you got to pick one. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to say he's not good, well, then that would seem to affirm that you believe he exists. You just don't like him. But if he doesn't exist, if you're saying he doesn't exist, well, then he's not good or bad. He's just not a factor. But when that wasn't their complaint, the atheists and the agnostics, they would say they couldn't believe in the Christian faith, they couldn't believe that it was true and valid because they knew so many Christians who were not upstanding or consistent or right in their conduct or their way of treating people. They knew so many Christians who were hypocrites. And the honest truth is there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who are hypocrites. And there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who don't always do what they ought to do. Don't always say what they ought to say. In fact, um, I don't know if this will come as a surprise, but that's all of them. That, that's all of us. I say them and then I have to do a double take. No, I, that's me too. It's not all the other Christians besides me. It's all of us, all of us who put our faith in Christ. The prerequisite is that we admit that we're not perfect and we're not doing it right all the time. We don't have all the right attitudes and we don't have all the right perspectives and we don't have all the right behaviors and we don't have all the right orientations of the heart. In fact, were it otherwise, there wouldn't be a need for Christ to have been fully God and fully man, to have lived a perfect, obedient, sinless life and to have paid the price for us. There wouldn't be a price to pay. And so I think coming to this Tom Holland book where he's being fairly even-handed, talking through some of the low points and the high points of Christianity, those low points, boy, they are sometimes very low. For instance, there's a character from the 12th century, 11th to 12th century, AD, by the name of Peter Abelard, French Pierre Abelard. He was a medieval French scholastic philosopher, a logician, theologian, poet, composer, musician, and he was just absolutely brilliant, according to Tom Holland's telling. He was absolutely brilliant and handsome. 
and full of himself. And a professor in Paris, Wikipedia says he is best known for his passionate and tragic love affair and intense philosophical exchange with his brilliant student and eventual wife, Eloise de Argentuil. He was a defender of women and of their education. After having sent Eloise to a convent in Brittany to protect her from her abusive uncle who did not want her to pursue this forbidden love, he was castrated by men sent by the uncle. Still considering herself as his spouse, even though both retired to monasteries after this event, Eloise publicly defended him when his doctrine was condemned by Pope Innocent II at Abelard, considered a heretic. Among these opinions, Abelard professed the innocence of a woman who commits a sin out of love. Now, whether he was all right, the thing that was done to him by an abusive uncle of his wife is monstrous. It's a monstrous thing. And there are a number of problems with the way that very often we look back on stories like Peter Abelard's, which I appreciate Tom Holland's treatment of. I appreciate his treatment of the mistaken way we so often deal with the history of the Christian West. For one, we might suppose that this abusive uncle and the sending of these men to castrate Abelard because they were Europeans, because this was an ostensibly Christian civilization, these men therefore were Christians. And therefore, this is what you get with Christianity and it's no better than any other belief about God or any other way of viewing our situation in the universe. But there's nothing to suggest, to my way of thinking, that these men who castrated Peter Abelard were Christians or that the abusive uncle was a Christian. For that matter, even if they had claimed to being Christians, even if they were thought to be Christians because they went to church or they were baptized when they were young, doesn't mean that they were in fact Christians. And that's an important point that too few people seem to appreciate. But besides that, there's also the question of Peter Abelard. If he was a theologian, not just claiming to be a Christian, but really delving into the implications of belief in the God of Christianity, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he might have really been a Christian, and his wife, Eloise, might have really been a Christian. And that wouldn't mean that they were perfect. That wouldn't mean that they were correct in everything that they said and did, even if they were Christians. But that's not the point. The truth of Christianity, of the gospel, it's not contingent on our perfection. It's contingent on God's perfection on his faithfulness, on his holiness, on his righteousness, on his love and mercy and justice and goodness and power and wisdom. His love for us is the necessary element. Our capacity to love God, to be faithful, to obey, that is a byproduct and an imperfect one at that. And somehow, some way, it pleases God for this to be the way of things for now. And some people will then turn and say, well, but that's not right. And that's not fair. And how could God allow for bad things to happen? How could God allow for that to happen to Pete Abelard? If in fact, Abelard was a Christian, that's awful. How could he allow for Eloise's uncle to claim to be Christian? If he did claim to be a Christian, or if he thought of himself as a Christian, how could God allow these men to castrate Peter Abelard and think of themselves as Christians, even possibly, remotely? Is that even a possibility? Well, yeah, it's a possibility. But that's not the way that this works for the same reasons that the truth of Christianity doesn't depend on our goodness. When we are wrong and we know that we're wrong, the saving power of Christ is not contingent on our being devoid of shame and guilt and misgivings and frailties and weakness, humanly speaking. But vice versa, 
Neither is it limited by when we are quite sure that we are right. We are in the right, even if God must be faulted somehow. That's not the way this works. That's not the way it can work. That can't be the way of it. And it seems to me in reading Dominion by Tom Holland that Tom Holland understands that and has given us the arc of Western history for the last 2,000 years, keeping that in mind. It's remarkable. It's really remarkable and very needful in our day. And you look back on people being superstitious, cruel, unfair, unkind, unjust. And maybe you say, well, what's the use, right? What's the use of becoming Christians if that's what we're going to go back to? But no, 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 no. Wait. So God saves those who are his for eternal life, and we will be made perfect. We won't be contending with our sinful nature and our human frailty forever. We will be made perfect. But even in the meantime, God blesses those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God blesses them and works all things to the good. And so the story of Western civilization is peculiarly blessed in a way that I think doesn't make a lot of sense apart from the providence of God. People try to make sense of it. And when they can't make sense of it, they try to marginalize it and downplay it and ignore it. And that's why it's important that we find books like this. We find books like Dominion by Tom Holland so that we can't get off so easy or are not deceived, misled by others. You know, you, you think about the state of America right now and, you know, there are people who think it's just, it's done. It's done. America's done for. And that might well be. Other great powers have come and gone, risen and fallen, just like an individual has a life cycle. Civilizations have a life cycle, it would seem, at least looking back through history. We don't know for sure where we're at in ours, but all the same, if some people live 20, 30, 40 years old, other people live 70, 80 years old, well, then maybe our country being able to endure several more generations wouldn't be such a bad thing if that could be accomplished by repentance. Now, that's a work of God. That's a work of the Holy Spirit, to be sure. But it's not just a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just God working independently, and then we just sit on our hands and twiddle our thumbs. And I guess we'll find out. No, no. If it's a good thing to pray for revival, then it's a good thing to work for revival. If it's a good thing to wish, to hope, and to pray that our country would serve God, well then, so also. It's a good thing to work towards that and to call for that and to lead that. To pray for it is one thing. To live it out yourself, well, and then that's how we know whether we are really praying for it. Some people in our day, I've known them, I've known them, I've read them, I've seen them, I've heard them, seem almost to wish that death would come swiftly for this country. And I believe that that is just another thing to repent of, and that we should repent of it. And maybe part of how we might go about repenting of it is to pick up a book like Dominion. In fact, why not? Just pick up Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World by Tom Holland. Give it a read. Consider it. Now, he might not be correct in everything, but I think that's not quite the point because God is right. Abraham Lincoln once said, when asked whether he thought God was on the Union side or the Confederate side in the Civil War, my concern is not whose side God is on, but that we would be on God's side, for God is always right. And that's where we should be. That's what our mindset should be also. Do check it out. Give it a listen. You won't be sorry you did. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.